Mark's Gospel. We're going to look at chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, which you'll find on page uh, 1014. Mark chapter 10, and I want to read from verse 1 to verse 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Okay. Um, I read this yesterday. Uh, It's a big article in the Times on... uh, basically uh, lesbian motherhood based on the, partly on the film The Kids Are Alright, which is a film that's just out and is a hit in America just now, uh, but also the alternative family show, which is on this weekend in London, looking at the trials and tribulations of same-sex parenting. Let me just read this to you. Today, the alternative family show opens in London, thought to be the first exhibition of its kind in support of same-sex families. With 30 exhibition stands, including the London Sperm Bank and various adoption agencies, it is billed as a one-stop showcase for singles, couples, and families who do not identify with the increasingly outmoded idea that families comprise only a married heterosexual couple with children. Now, we are getting into an extremely confused state in our society, in our country, as regards families and marriage. And... A lot of people would say that what I'm going to say this evening is a little bit intolerant or wrong, and they'd be horrified at some of the views that are expressed. And that might be okay. It might be okay um, for people to say that. If it wasn't for the fact, first of all, I believe that what we're looking at is God's Word. But at a practical level, I don't think there's anything caused more havoc and damage and trouble in our culture and society than the teaching on the family that has occurred in this country since the 1960s and increasingly so nowadays, which has undermined the Christian understanding, the biblical God-given understanding of the family. And what it's done is it's left people in chaos. I think that teaching does more harm than than drug abuse, it does more harm than alcoholism, it does more harm than almost anything else, because the the relationships we have, particularly within within families, they are so important, and they affect so many things. There are people who say, we don't like religion interfering with our private lives. Well, what do we think about that? There are at least two problems. Firstly, our private lives impinge upon everyone else. The number one cause of homelessness and poverty is family breakdown. 
We often expect the state to pick up the tab, but we still say it's private. But our private actions have public consequences. Secondly, if religion doesn't interfere, then the state probably will. And should we allow the state to determine morality? Now, I happen to think that neither religion nor the state should determine morality. Nor can I accept what we call individual autonomy, where people just say, oh, I'll do whatever seems best for me, where each does what seems right in his own eyes. The basic guideline for us is surely this. Those of us who profess to be Christians, and those of you who are not Christians, I hope that you'll see the wisdom of this. It's just simply to ask, what does God say? Obey the maker's instructions. So this evening, we're going to look at something really, really personal. That is marriage and divorce. It's not just addressed to married people. It's not just addressed to divorced people. It's not just addressed to single people. It is incredibly complex and very personal for many of us. And we're just simply asking, what does Jesus say? The context here is that Jesus comes into Judea. He's teaching. He's patiently teaching. The crowds follow. The teaching of Jesus is very radical and very attractive. And here come these religious people, the Pharisees, and they want to test him. They want to question him. And basically, it's a trick question like the earlier one he was asked on tax. It was a very tricky question in that culture. It's a bit like when I go and do debates and someone says, David, what do you think about homosexuality? It's a trick question. They don't really want to know what I think. They want to be able to accuse and attack. This was also a very tricky question for Jesus because he'd just come into the territory of King Herod. King Herod had divorced his wife so that he could marry somebody else. And when John the Baptist stood up and said this is wrong and said to his face that it was wrong, he ended up being killed, first of all imprisoned and then killed for his troubles. So what Jesus does is he goes straight and he asks, what did Moses command you? What did God say through Moses? And he then goes on to talk about what God's will and God's purpose is. I think um, he's not asking, is this pleasing or displeasing in terms of divorce? He's saying, what does God intend by marriage in the first place? And that's really where we begin. We begin by asking, what is God's purpose for marriage? Why does marriage exist at all? Why, why, why between one man and one woman? I mean, these are important questions. Why, why can't you marry 10 people? Why can't uh, a man have 10 wives or a woman have 10 husbands? I wonder why there's actually never been a society where that's happened. Um, why do you have to marry at all? Why can't you just go and be with someone for a while and then go and be with someone else? Um, why can't you just do what these alternative families say? And by the way, please beware of politicians like our prime minister saying they're for the family. You've got to ask, what do they mean by the family? It's a buzzword. Everyone's for the family. But what's a family? Well, let's begin with God's purpose for marriage. What does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? God said, let us make man in our image. Just quickly, let us make man, of course, means male and female. In our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That obviously, that clearly does not mean that our human bodies are designed so that they look like God, because God doesn't have a body. 
It means that we are created with personalness. It means that we are created morally, that we are rational, that we can think, that we can feel, that we can have relationships. And he created human beings not isolated, but to have relationships with one another. Now, in various forms, that's true, but the male-female relationship is probably the most fundamental. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. See, I think that most young people are growing up in our culture today where they are being taught that sex is just an appetite like eating. But the Bible has a very high view of sex, and it's very different from what people think. It's not no sex. It's not that sex is a dirty word. The Bible's teaching is that it is so special precisely because it means unity and unifying. And that's why when people are very promiscuous sexually, they're ripping apart themselves and ripping apart other people. God's original purpose and intention was lifelong faithfulness of a man and a woman in marriage. Jesus says here, they become one flesh. The two become one flesh. They are no longer members of two different families, but they've created a new one. For those of us who are looking forward to a wedding next year in April, uh, some of us anyway, nice to see you here, Becky. Um, <laughs> um, it's, you know, sometimes at a speech, you'll get the father of the bride will stand up and say, I'd like to welcome, you know, let's just say his name's Pete, for example, into our family. Uh, and actually, I think that's wrong, because that's not what's happening. It's not that the, the, the groom is coming into a family, or it's not that the bride is coming into a family. It's that they're actually creating a new family. Husband and wife, the two uh, become one flesh. There is a physical, social, emotional, and even spiritual union. And it's within that context that children are to be brought into this world and to be brought up. Let me just put it very, very simply. It is very difficult for the state to bring up children. Very difficult. I know that there are circumstances where you have children who are orphaned. I know that there are circumstances where marriages break down. I know that, and I'm absolutely... We have to care for and provide for children. But the notion that children, the, the, that anything other than one man and one woman in the context of marriage is ideal for bringing up children, anything other than that, I, I think is just completely wrong. And from God's Word, it is completely wrong. It's really tough to bring children up in this world. And unless you have the context of a loving, supportive relationship, it's very hard. I have every admiration for single mothers or single fathers who are looking after children for whatever reason. But it's really, really tough. It's not despising them, and it's not disparaging people who are in those circumstances to say it is particularly hard. Not everyone is to be married. That's another thing. Hugely important to say. It's really wrong when you get in within a church. People talk about marriage as though if you're not married, there's something wrong with you. Why aren't you married yet? Because uh, I haven't found the right person because I don't want to be because it's not what God's called me to. You never look down on people in that way. But if we enter into a sexual relationship, we should only do so within the context of marriage. In actual fact, both marriage and singleness 
involve sacrifice. Now, that's why in Malachi, the passage that Owen read, we're told that God hates divorce because it is a disruption of God's original purpose. Well, that's all very well. That's a counsel of perfection, as some people would argue. I don't think it is. I think it's guidelines, basic guidelines for us. But what happens when things go wrong? If marriage is so important, then you can expect things to go wrong. There's one way to disrupt, for example, the work within a church, and that's to cause marriages amongst Christians to fall apart. And we see that happening quite a lot. What happens when things go wrong? Well, let's see what the Bible says about that. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. This is Jesus. This is the passage, really, that Jesus and the Pharisees are discussing. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now the word for divorce means putting away, putting out of the house. It really is the equivalent of just saying get out. In Jewish law, a woman was in effect regarded as a thing. Jesus is dealing in this context and in this situation, and he's challenging it. He's not accepting it. He's, I don't, he's not going against the teaching of Deuteronomy. He's going against the interpretation of the teaching of Deuteronomy that some men had taken. And by the way, you will often find that men in positions of power use religion in order to oppress women. You have to admit that. That does occur. And that's what was happening here. A woman was regarded as the property of a man who had no legal rights, but was at the complete disposal of the man. The teaching of the Torah was this. A woman may be divorced with or without her will, but a man only with his will. And divorce was very easy for the man. The Pharisees, of course, who were all men, argued with one another about how they could do divorce. And this question of what does indecent mean? There's something indecent about her. There was a, a Pharisaic school called Scamai, which argued that it was only adultery. On the other hand, there was another school called Hillel, who used this verse to get divorced for the most trivial reasons. Now, this is true. Here's a reason that is given by the school of Hillel. This is a direct quote. If the wife cooks her husband's food ill by oversalting it or over-roasting it, she is to be put away. There you go. I would never have that excuse, by the way. But um, some of you might have that excuse. That's what they said. It's indecent. The woman is indecent because she hasn't cooked my food properly. So you can put her away. I mean, that's the context in which Jesus is coming into. Other rules, if she talked to a strange man, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's relations in his hearing, I think out of his hearing it would be okay. If she was a brawling woman, and do you know what a bra how a brawling woman was defined? And I don't wish to be rude, but some of you would be in trouble with, for this one. A brawling woman was someone whose voice could be heard in the next house. 
So if her voice could be heard in the next house, she could be defined as a brawling woman, and the husband can get rid of her. A wonderful man called Rabbi Akiba even went so far as to say that a woman was indecent if her husband found someone who was better looking than her. And you just think about that. You are indecent because I found someone who's better looking than you. Can you imagine being a woman in that situation? Women were afraid to get married. It was so insecure. And Jesus is coming into that context. And he's, these men are coming trying to trick him. And he's challenging them, restoring the Bible's teaching on marriage. Now, he'd already responded to this in the Sermon on the Mount. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That was basically the standard. That's the standard, by the way, that largely prevails in many Islamic societies where the man only has to say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and that's it. No reason. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Here he speaks of a man committing adultery against a woman. That, by the way, again, that was Jesus' radical teaching. That was not the normal way. It was always the woman who was in the wrong. It was always the woman who was the adulteress. So a man is involved in adultery, and uh, you'll find this again in, in some cultures, that it's the woman who gets punished. She must have been responsible. She must have seduced him. Jesus teaches the other way. He talks about a man committing adultery. Now, in private with his disciples, he reinforces that. And here, that's the discussion that he is having with them. It's a teaching that's repeated in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. And uh, the disciples, I'll just read from verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. You see what they're saying? If we just can't get rid of our wives, then how can we live together when things don't go well? It's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone who accepts this Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What Jesus is doing is radically challenging and changing the culture of marriage and the relationships between men and women in the misogynistic patriarchal culture in which he lived. Moses permitted this, it says, because their hearts were hard. Jesus is not undermining the Old Testament, by the way. He's given us a very basic principle of biblical interpretations. There are some situations where commands are given because of the situation, and these commands no longer apply. In other words, they are specific to that situation. The problem here is not God's purpose, which was clear from the beginning, nor even what Moses said, but the human heart. When we are faced with the ideal but that breaks up because of human sinfulness. How do we deal with it? Jesus allows an exception here. He doesn't say no divorce at all. He allows one for marital unfaithfulness. Because 
the breaking of the one fleshness is sufficient grounds for divorce. He doesn't say it has to happen. There are situations where there has been adultery and there's been forgiveness and restoration. But it may be that in some circumstances, the trust, the physical bond has been broken, the emotional bond has been broken, the spiritual bond has been broken. And divorce is really the equivalent of saying, that's it, it's over and done with. That's again why uh, it's so important that we challenge, just as Jesus challenged the misogyny uh, and the way that women were treated in his culture, we have to challenge that as well. That men and women are not just sexual objects to be used, but that we are faithful to one another and we respect one another and we treat one another well. There is another reason that's given. Oops. Uh, I got this right. That one. Yeah. This is Paul, and I, I do have to read this. Paul says to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. What that's saying is a very simple situation. You have a situation where in a partnership, the husband or the wife, one of them becomes a Christian, and the temptation was, especially amongst the women in Corinth when that happened, they were saying, oh, what a relief. I'm now a Christian. My husband's not a Christian. I'm out of here. And Paul is saying, no, don't leave. If your husband is willing to stay with you, but the important word is in peace. If he's willing to live with you in peace, you carry on being a Christian, you carry on with your life, then don't leave. But if they're not willing to let that happen, then let them go. Now that principle, what's called the Pauline principle or the Corinthian principle, that's, that can be abused and misused, but it can be used in different circumstances. I mean, how do you deal with this situation? I was in a presbytery, a gathering of, of church elders and ministers, and a, um, a woman came to see us. She basically had gone to her own church, and her church had come and asked for advice. Her husband was beating her up. Not just horrendous as it would be, the occasional slap and so on, which would be absolutely horrendous, but he was, he was beating her up to the point of, well, she was hospitalized, and her life was in danger. And she felt as a Christian that she'd been taught, you never leave your husband, and she wasn't going to. And we met with her, what would you say? We said to her, you have to leave. You, it's like committing suicide. This passage was cited in other passages we looked at and we, we talked about. We said, it's, it is absolutely, it's crazy to stay in that situation. Sure, if you are convinced that you shouldn't get remarried, fine, but you have to get out of there. It is entirely wrong. And I think that's sometimes the mess that we're dealing with in, in, in the world in which we live. But, a couple of things. What about remarriage? Is that always forbidden? Some say yes until the other partner dies. 
But you'll notice that adultery, for example, in the Old Testament led to the death penalty. And there was a sense in which the early church understood that adultery would be the death of the marriage. Marriages do fall apart. People feel trapped. There are deteriorating relationships which destroy both husband and wife and children. Society's pressures, non-Christian standards and lifestyles all militate against stable marriage. This is not saying, and Jesus is not saying, in fact, he's saying the opposite. He's not saying, when things get tough, get out. That would be a very pharisaical way of looking at it. I think that we can look at it in this way. Firstly, we must pray for the good of our society that the marriage laws are maintained. The collapse of marriage will result in the collapse of our society. I think it will result in the collapse of our economy. Do you know why we need to build 200,000 extra homes? It's because within 10 years, it's reckoned the majority of households in Britain will be single people. And a lot of that is to do with broken marriages. There will be untold misery, especially for the poor. (laughs) When you speak to a child, and I remember one child in a discovery camp many years ago, uh, saying, right, go back and tell your dad. He said, which one? I said, what do you mean, which one? He said, I've got five. Five. What's that kid? What's that kid going to do? You know, it is unbelievable the way that this kind of bourgeois middle-class morality that came out in the 1960s, how it's gone down through the whole of society, and then you get newspapers like The Sun and so on, absolutely condemning a woman who has 12 children by 11 different men and all scrounging off the state and so on. And everyone goes tut tut tut. What do you expect? What do you expect if you teach people that sex is just recreational, that children are just a consequence, and that someone else will look after them anyway? Don't blame and, and, and isolate and demonize a woman who's grown up in that culture and is just at its most extreme, just accepting what is being taught. Free love does not bring a free society. It never has done, and it never will. When we go down the route of homosexual marriage, polygamy, cheap marriage, easy divorce, then it's a route that only ends in destruction. So we pray that that will be maintained. I don't think it will be, by the way. I think we've gone back into Roman society. We've gone back into New Testament culture where the church will be despised because we are so different. We must maintain, stand up, prepare people for, and sustain couples in the divine purpose of one man, one woman for life. And if you seriously think that having a glossy wedding in a church and, you know, reading a couple of Mills and Boone books or whatever, and, and, or a couple of guidance things on marriage, that that's going to make it work. No, it's not. Marriage is really tough. And it's, I think it's particularly tough in terms of our culture and our society. Jesus was taking on the loose sexual morality of the day, and we have to do the same. Jesus was building a defense around the home, and we have to do the same. So before you get married, you think about how important it is. It can be a cause of great joy, a cause of great peace, but it can also be a great source of misery. The best thing to do is invite Christ to your wedding and take him into your marriage. Now say this, and... This is not because of any ethnic or religious snobbery or division. That it is a folly 
for a Christian to marry someone who's not a believer? How can you share your life with someone when they leave out the most important part for you, that is Jesus? Marry, says Paul, in the Lord. Those of us who are in marriage, it's good advice not to expect too much from your partner. Your marriage is a union of two sinners, not two angels. And when two sinners marry, they don't become one perfect couple. They just become two sinners living together. You get on better with another sinner when you don't live with them. When you're living with them and committed to them for life and there is no way out, there can be real problems there. And that's why Christian marriage has to be different because it recognizes the problems, faces up to the problems, doesn't hide behind the problems, and we work for one another's sanctification. Last verse from uh, Ephesians. Wives, submit to your husbands as the Lord. We'll not go there tonight. Time's gone, thankfully. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. I'm not going to go into all that, but just simply to say this. Jesus' aim was to make the church holy. We would get on a whole lot better in our marriages if our aim was to make one another holy and to be holy in how we treat one another. Now, if you're not used to the term holy and you think, what does that mean? It means purity. It means love. It means without wrong anger. It means without gossip. It means without seeking to hurt. Our aim is to make, to help one another to be holy. And that's actually a great word because we want whole marriages of whole people. What about those of us who have broken marriages or struggle within marriage? That happens in the church. People in church who are divorced, people in church who wish they were divorced, people in church who have all different kinds of problems within their marriage. When the marriage does not work out, we must offer all the compassion of Christ and healing that is possible. We pray that the broken will be healed and that marriages will either be healed and restored or when it irretrievably broken down, restored. That's why we support what uh, Robert, uh, Rayam and Bev and, uh, are doing with uh, progression counseling. It's always a good idea to ask for help. What about those who are divorced? Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's right to be separated or divorced. What if you've been wrongly divorced? You can't go back. Then you remember there's forgiveness in Christ. It's not the unforgivable sin. Neither divorce nor adultery are the unforgivable sin. This is, as I said at the beginning, this is hugely complex and hugely difficult. But because it's difficult and because you can think of exceptions, don't give up on it. Get the basic principles right and try and work within those basic principles and basic foundation. And we, let, let's, let me say this about the church. 
it is entirely wrong of us to look at people who are in broken situations and just go, ah, forget them. We mustn't do what the tabloid newspapers do when they moralize and condemn people, and they themselves are such hypocrites. We mustn't do that. What we must do is realize, of course, we live in a broken society. We live where there are broken marriages. We must model what is good. We must seek to heal where there is brokenness. We must bring the forgiveness of Christ where there is need for that forgiveness. We must seek to show the wisdom, compassion, and love of Jesus Christ. I'm um, very thankful, very thankful personally for the gift of marriage and for the teaching that God's Word gives about that. I am ashamed and appalled at the way that that teaching has been misused and abused by so many religious people. And I am nauseated to the pit of my stomach at the way that our culture has rejected largely what the Bible says about marriage and is causing people to walk into the most poisonous of relationships. But I'm not in despair at all. Jesus came. He taught his disciples about this. But Jesus didn't come to tell us how to have a good marriage. Jesus came to provide the means whereby we can be forgiven and renewed and restored. And he did that through his death on the cross. He is a beautiful Savior who is concerned about every aspect of our life, including every part of our relationships. And no matter where you are just now, no matter where you have come from, no matter what's happened in your past, you can come to Jesus and you can experience His love and you can begin to untangle the mess that is in your own heart and that is in your own relationships. Last thing is just simply this. The Bible does not tell us that if you become a Christian, all your relationships get straightened out and everything's fine. It doesn't say that. That would be wrong for us to say that. But it does tell us that the reason they went wrong has gone away. And we have been forgiven and we have a basis on which to renew and to, um, to forgive and to be forgiven. And I think who of us would not want that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the gift of marriage. We confess that like so many of your good gifts, human beings have abused that gift. They've abused the gift of sexuality. They've abused, we have abused and uh, we have sought power instead of love. We have been greedy instead of sharing. We've indulged in lust rather than intimacy. We pray, O Lord, that you would forgive us. We thank you that you send your son Jesus to die for us, that we could experience that forgiveness. And I pray for each of us here, for those who are married, that we would have whole and healthy and stable and loving relationships Pray, O Lord, for those who are divorced, that you would help healing personally within. 
Pray, O Lord, for those who are uh, guilty of adultery in different ways, whether actual physical adultery or maybe even more likely just mental in our minds. Pray that you would grant forgiveness and uh, uh, a renewed sense of commitment and exclusive commitment to our partners. Pray, O Lord, that you would bless uh, the work of uh, Robert Rayam, Progression, and Bev, and that uh, you would encourage them as they seek to bring the principles of your word to apply in these situations. Pray for those of us who are single, that you would guide and that you would help, that for those who are to be married, you would guide to the right person and those who receive the gift of singleness, that it would be seen just as that. And I pray for us as a church family that we would support and help one another whatever our situation. It's not good for us to be alone. Lord, grant that none of us would experience that not good loneliness, but that we would be able to share and uh, work together for your glory. We ask that for any of us here who as yet don't know you, that above all, we would seek to come into a relationship with you and that we would accept your forgiveness in your name.